Hey everyone, my name is Dr. Dolores Tarver. I'm a licensed psychologist here in Georgia, and it is time for the tea. Tea Time with Dr. Tarver is a wellness-based podcast. It is not intended to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health provider. We are three weeks in to these August shows. I've been super excited about these conversations that we've been having about dating. Last week, we talked about incarceration, and this week is one of my favorite topics because we're going to be addressing some of the ramifications of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and we're also going to be talking about women's maternal health. So we've got a good show lined up for you today. Do remember that if you have questions, to go ahead and drop them in the chat, and we'll do our very best to get them answered for you. But without further ado, I would like to introduce a very special guest to Tea Time with Dr. Tarver, Dr. Wesley Chambers, who attended Morehouse College, where he majored in biology and graduated summa cum laude. He attended medical school at the University of Alabama School of Medicine and completed an OBGYN internship and residency at the University of South Alabama Hospitals in 2014. He is a board-certified fellow of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. He is a physician focused on women's health and is especially interested in prevention of gynecological cancers. He is currently working in private practice with his father, Dr. Crandall Chambers, who is also an OBGYN physician, and he is the very proud husband of Shannon Chambers and the father to John, Jada, and Kyle. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chambers. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You are so very welcome. So let's get right into it because we already talked about I got lofty goals for all of the things we'll be able to get into on this evening. Um, so I, I mentioned the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I know that has had a lot of impact, particularly here um, in Georgia, because we had a heartbeat bill that was in place prior to um, that is now we're returning back to. So could you just give a little bit of information? I know some people may not even be aware of what that means, but what are we currently dealing with here in Georgia about a women's ability, a woman's ability to be able to even qualify for an abortion? Well, women's reproductive services have been drastically limited in the state of Georgia uh, prior to the overturning of Roe versus Wade with the Dobbs versus Jackson decision. Women in Georgia could uh, obtain abortions or uh, obtain reproductive services up until uh, the 22nd week of pregnancy or 20 weeks uh, after the fertilization. Uh, and so with the most recent House Bill 481 uh, being actually allowed to go into effect by, it was kind of held up in, in the district courts uh, after the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, but it has now been allowed to go into effect. Uh, and so at this point, a woman cannot obtain any reproductive services in the state of Georgia after the point at which a heart beat or some kind of cardiac activity can be detected uh, during a pregnancy. So usually that occurs around the six week mark of pregnancy. So we're talking about pretty early on where some women may not even realize that they're pregnant by that time. Right, a lot of women do not know that they're pregnant at the six week mark of pregnancy. Most women find out that they're pregnant at the time of the missed uh, cycle um, when they have a menstrual cycle that doesn't come and then go and take a pregnancy test. So that's that's when we usually detect pregnancies. That can be detected, uh, you know, a little bit earlier than six weeks, 
but for women that have some, any kind of irregularity in their menstrual cycle, uh, you know, the six week mark might not be any kind of alarming situation for them. So they might not even be, you know, seeking uh, verification of whether they're pregnant or not at that point. And uh, if you go to seek abortion services and the provider finds that there is a heartbeat detected, uh, you will be denied those services in the state of Georgia. So you may be at a point where you're just now learning, trying to figure out what your options are. And by the time you get there, it's too late for you to do anything here in the state of Georgia. Right. And so, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, the patient having time to even detect that they're pregnant. But we also have to acknowledge that deciding whether or not to uh, carry a pregnancy to term is a very monumental decision. And sometimes it takes some time to come to the conclusion as to what you want to do, you know, whether you want to access reproductive services or whether you, you know, would desire to go forward with carrying a pregnancy to term. And so given the current law in Georgia, a person really doesn't have a lot of time to even be able to talk through those options. Um, right. If they're already at this six week mark, um, then the likelihood is very slim that there won't be a heartbeat detected. So they may not even have a chance to talk to a partner about this and, and think about any of these things that you talked about. That right. Could be I mean, they, they might not have an opportunity to see a physician mm -hmm. and to discuss uh, any kind of prior uh, health issues that the patient may, may or may not have uh, that may affect such a decision. They might not have time to consult with uh, spiritual uh, leaders or, or people that uh, they respect in terms of uh, their moral decisions and, and uh, when it comes to making those who, who they might consult with regard to that, uh, or, you know, just talking to spouses or family members. Um, and, and so uh, it's, it's a very harsh uh, and limiting uh, piece of legislation that, that was passed. And I think about people, like you mentioned, not even having a provider yet. Uh, you know, if I wasn't planning on having a child, um, so I may not even be seeing a gynecologist regularly. What if I live in a rural area? What if I'm in a position where I don't have insurance right now or insurance benefits are, are too expensive or limited for me? So I'm not even in the position to have someone to consult with by the time that I would be essentially forced to have made a decision if I was going to be able to consider an abortion as an option? Well, the most recent data that I could find showed that about 1.3 million Georgians are uninsured. Um, about half of, well, over half of Georgia's counties uh, do not have an obstetric provider uh, in the county. And, and so there are some significant barriers to access uh, that, that women are facing. Uh, many women do not have any physician that they're seeing on a regular basis. A lot of women, uh, about 20% of women, uh, have not seen a provider in the past 12 months in the state of Georgia. And so, you know, this, this can, it's very, it's very limiting. Resources are limited. Uh, patients' access is limited. And now you are putting uh, a very severe time limitation on patients. And so uh, this legislation uh, pretty much eliminates access to reproductive services in the state of Georgia for all intents and purposes. 
And that was what I was wondering, because I think about as a new patient, even being able to get in to see a provider mm -hmm. um, and what your wait time would be right. to get in. Yeah, there are many providers who are going to say, you know, uh, we'll, we can see you in four weeks or, or six weeks from now. Uh, you can you can get an appointment. And, and so, uh, yeah, Georgia has really uh, limited access for women. Um, and women need to be very, um, they, they need to exercise forethought at this point, knowing that the uh, circumstances are what they are. And, uh, and we need to make sure that women know that uh, contraceptive services are available and that things like emergency contraception is available to them. That was a great segue. So what are the circumstances currently in Georgia under which a woman could receive emergency contraception? Well, uh, Plan B, the, the levonorgestrel uh, one-dose regimen uh, is available over the counter without a prescription. And so women have access to Plan B, which they can use after uh, a unprotected intercourse or, or even uh, intercourse where bar barrier protection was used, but it failed for whatever reason. Uh, emergency contraception is available at your local pharmacy, and, and you can pick that up without a pres prescription. Uh, it would need to be used within 72 hours of the event, uh, the, the plan B itself. Now, there is a, another version of emergency contraceptive, uh, ulipristol, which is uh, effective for five days after the event but that does require a prescription at this point. So you would still need to at least have a provider in order for you to be able to even access that one. Yes, absolutely. And there's still a small window. So we're talking about five days. Three to five days, yes. Okay. Plan B has to be utilized within uh, three days and the uh, Ulipristol, which requires the prescription, can be used within five days. Uh, there is also the copper intrauterine device uh, which uh, can be used for emergency, con emergency contraceptives uh, within five days. But uh, this, of course, requires uh, placement by a provider mm. who's trained to do that. And it also, you know, the barrier is uh, also monetary in that that intrauterine device uh, can be very, very costly. Okay. So if you don't have insurance or you have limited financial resources, then that one may not necessarily be a realistic option for you. Right, it, it could cost like four, from 400 to $1,300 to, to have a copper IED placed. Okay, so definitely not an option for as we're talking about how many people are uninsured in Georgia. Right. Like thinking that that is not even necessarily an option that would be realistic. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you talk about people being uninsured and I know that there are some places where you can get um, free contraceptives and I know that um, yes. uh, birth control pills um, potentially can and can be one of those things. Um, but, but when we talk about lack of insurance and lack of access, like how easy is it then for people to be able to even, when you talk about women need to be informed and um, really think about their options, how easy is it for someone to access if there's a language barrier, immigrants, I'm thinking about people in rural areas or people with a lack of transportation, insurance, all of these factors that could be barriers in general, how realistic is, is it for women to be able to access some of these things? Uh, so, yeah, th those obstacles uh, will have to be overcome. Uh, our local health departments uh, in, in 
the various counties in Georgia are places where women who are uninsured can go and receive uh, some basic uh, uh, services in terms of contraception and uh, screening for things like sexually transmitted infections and cervical cancer. And so uh, using the local health departments uh, would, would be probably the, the most readily available option for some of these women with uh, very limited resources. Um, uh, going back to uh, abortion access, there are medical abortion uh, regimens that can be ordered online. Mm. For, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't know how uh, vigilant uh, law enforcement will be with regard to uh, monitoring what women are, are ordering from uh, parties overseas or out of state uh, in order to uh, obtain access to medical abortions. Mm -hmm. So, so misoprostol is a, uh, an agent that causes uterine contractions and can be safely used early in pregnancy uh, to achieve uh, a medical uh, abortion. And uh, there are resources online where women can obtain uh, those particular uh, medications. So what is the safety of that? Because I know that is one of the concerns that for women who are, and we know that if women have resources, they could potentially go to another state where abortions are legal. Right. Um, however, for women that don't necessarily have resources, like how safe are some of these things that women may be ordering online out of maybe desperation or? Um, well, it's it's safer than the alternative uh, of, of undergoing some kind of uh, unsafe procedure, uh, you know, locally, okay? Yes. And so it, very early in pregnancy, those medications have been shown to be very safe. Okay. So misoprostol, you know, prior to 10 weeks of pregnancy is an exceedingly safe way to achieve uh, an abortion. Um, of course, if, if law enforcement is, is really cracking down, now there are many DAs who have said that they are not going to prosecute uh, people who are seeking abortions or mm -hmm. providing abortions, but, uh, you know, you would obviously have some that are of a, a different state of mind or, or opinion. And so um, that would have, that would be embarked upon at the risk of, you know, law enforcement penalties. So that's a good point. Um, I guess, so two things. One is, are women, you know, is there a site specifically that women can know that they're getting? Because I know that sometimes people will take advantage of mm -hmm. um, when women may be in situations and they'll create websites and offer products that aren't regulated. So the first question is, uh, how does a woman make sure that she's ordering something online that is safe and effective and what she actually thinks it is? Yeah. Um, and then the second question being, um, about these legal ramifications. We know in Nebraska, uh, this just happened, but I understand that there were some other circumstances that led to um, the police investigating these social media searches because there was a burying of uh, an infant that was, was, um, was born. So I know that that may be more of a, an extreme case, yeah. uh, but 
you know, for, for you all in terms of providers, like, are there any legal ramifications for you in terms of if you're giving information or what you're able to do uh, in terms of being able to support women with options that they have available to them? So the, the law does not make it clear, uh, you know, for providers what the penalty to providing certain information to women would be. Um, it, it does not seem that uh, a provider would be liable for providing information, okay, but uh, for providing an actual abortion, for performing an actual abortion, or providing medication by prescription with, you know, Dr. Wesley Chambers' name on it, mm -hmm. uh, then that could result in uh, penalties of up to 10 years imprisonment. Mm -hmm. If, if it's shown that uh, you provided this care to someone who had a baby with a potential heartbeat. Okay. Now, they have made exceptions for uh, situations where the life of the mother is at risk and for what they call medically futile pregnancies. Uh, and so, theoretically, miscarriages would fall under the medically futile pregnancies, ectopic pregnancies mm -hmm. should fall under the medically futile pregnancies. Uh, however, these people that are writing these laws are, are not physicians. They're mm -hmm. not scientists. And the people that may be prosecuting you or judging you or sitting on juries are, may not be either. Mm -hmm. And so it can still give pro providers some pause uh, you know, that, that these penalties are, are out there and it may, uh, slow down providers from providing even, you know, obvious appropriate treatments mm -hmm. to women who are not, you know, undergoing an elective aborted procedure. So that's good information too, for people to understand when they would qualify post heartbeat mm -hmm. for, uh, procedure. So yeah. you mentioned if, um, if you, the, uh, what, what your language was. So, so if someone is having a, a miscarriage, mm -hmm. uh, if, if we saw a heartbeat last week and then we, uh, find that the patient is having cramping and bleeding and symptoms that suggest a miscarriage is occurring. And then we repeat an ultrasound and now we don't see a heartbeat. Well, um, who's to say whether an overzealous prosecutor might look at this situation and say, well, a heartbeat was detected. Uh, how, how do you know that this was a medically futile pregnancy? How many times did you repeat this follow-up ultrasound? Mm -hmm. You know, what other data did you have? You know, somebody might disagree with your clinical decision-making in some of these um, areas that, that are clear to us as board-certified providers, but mm -hmm. maybe less clear to, to lay people. So if somebody wanted to be litigious, they could get an expert on there who could say, well, I mean, it is possible mm -hmm. that and so yeah. then that that opens up this realm of possibility. So now that you as providers, instead of being able to do what you feel like may be in your best clinical judgment, now you have to think about what can I 
what proof? Right. Yeah. How much, how much proof do I need to defend myself Mm -hmm. against, uh, the penalty of possibly a 10 year prison sentence. (laughs) So then this woman has to, who was having this miscarriage has to continue to, yes, she, she might have to continue to suffer. Whereas, uh, prior to this bill being enacted, we would most likely intervene and, uh, you know, maybe able to do, uh, give, give medications or perform Mm. a surgical Mm. procedure that would end the, the suffering, uh, uh, you know, that that's going along with this process, but uh, we may be inhibited from doing that for fear of uh, legal retribution. Uh, so this already traumatizing process becomes even more traumatizing for this person because now I have to be able to prove that it was medically futile. Right. And, and every provider is going to have a different threshold of mm. what uh, they are comfortable uh, with with doing. Uh, given this total, uh, it's a total change in in the environment in which we practice. You know, mm. we we don't we were not trained to practice in a world like this. Yes, you know? <laughs> we were trained to practice where Roe v. Wade was the law of the land mm-hmm. for over before I was born. You know, and so let alone when my training began, um, and so so it's a it's a whole new world, and and we. You know, we'll have to, every provider is going to have to decide how they navigate it. And, uh, but, it, but it, in, the bottom line is that women will suffer and women with, uh, women of vulnerable communities, women with lack of resources will, will suffer the most. In the state of Georgia, uh, 65% of abortions are sought by Black women. And so just that alone shows that you know, Black women are going to be uh, impacted more than most, uh, you know, compared to, you know, 21% of abortions are, are sought by white women in the state of Georgia. Uh, now, and the reasons for women seeking abortions are usually economic. Uh, they, they might feel that they don't have the resources economically to provide for a baby. They might feel that they need to uh, further their education in order to uh, obtain the kind of life that they want for themselves and for their future family. And so these are the chief reasons that women choose to uh, access reproductive services. And so you have um, 20% of Black women in the state of Georgia living in poverty and uh, a lack of access to these resources will ensure that more of them remain in poverty. Absolutely. And that is the, I think the other part of the conversation is we kind of shift to um, you don't want to or you want to take away our ability to make decisions about whether or not we have children, but you don't necessarily make sure the children are taken care of when they get here. Yeah, so so that's, you know, when we get into the morality of uh, giving the rights of citizenship to fetal or embryonic uh, potential humans, um, that, that question becomes very dicey because uh, 
so so we've the the law has given fetal personhood some some degree of 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 rights of citizenship and so now women can declare their unborn fetuses on their taxes um and so if uh, a fetus has right you know rights then that, what does that mean for other laws in the state so if a woman, what if a woman is uh, not finding out that she's pregnant until eight weeks and then she goes to another state to seek reproductive services? Can she be prosecuted for kidnapping? Because now if the fetus that she's carrying is a person too, uh, can, you know, can her family say that she kidnapped her, her baby and took it, took it across state lines? Um, you know, don't a fertilized egg as a potential human getting the same uh, rights of citizenship as adult women uh, is very problematic because right now you're denying adult women the rights to privacy to to just make medical decisions between themselves, their families, and their doctors, and and you're denying them bodily autonomy as as you give rights to embryos. You know that you know at six weeks it's not even a fetus yet it's it's an embryo and this is a potential person um but now the the thinking breathing human in front of you is being denied you know their constitutional rights i think to privacy bodily autonomy and so i think the moral question becomes uh quite you know disturbing mm-hmm. uh when, when you think about it, because w- when did, we can ask ourselves, when did black people in the United States get full rights of citizenship? Hmm. Uh, you know, when did we begin to e- expect equal protection under the law? Uh, I, I, was it when we all got video uh, access on our mobile devices? Because, you know, Ahmad Arbery's killers just got sentenced to life but would they have been sentenced at all without the video evidence uh proving what they did and proving Ahmad Aubrey's innocence which was leaked right mm-hmm. yeah so um so so these questions you know for me as a African-American in the United States uh it, it it's it's somewhat disturbing because you know it was legal to abort Trayvon Martin when, when he was a 17-year-old p- potential, you know, full adult human, right? But, but now we are giving full rights of citizenship to a fertilized egg. Right. And, right. and you know, just the, sci- the science behind what percentage of fertilized eggs make it to live births you know, if on if you're if we're being generous, uh, you know, what percentage of recognized pregnancies actually make it to a live birth? There may be twenty-five to forty percent of recognized pregnancies actually ending in a, a live birth. And so, you know, we accept that nature is going to lead to that that level of of uh you know, mortality for mm-hmm. these fertilized pregnancies. So can you imagine uh, accepting in, in our city that, you know, 
every week there's some event that leads to 25% of lives being lost in the city. Mm-hmm. And us just saying, you know, okay, that, that's, that's okay, that's fine. So, so if, you're, if you're equating the life of the adult woman and the life of the, the importance of the life of the unborn uh, fertilized embryo, Mm-hmm. then I, I, you know, I think you're doing a grave injustice. And I think it's very insulting to uh, people who have experienced life as like a, a Black American in the United States. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was so well stated because, again, uh, we often ask ourselves the questions, do we matter? Um, yeah. And so, you know, once again, you're telling us, well, you only matter when it comes to whether or not we want to regulate you bringing a child, which you have no control over, whether or not this is going to result in a live birth. But mm-hmm. we want to regulate that, but we don't want to protect you once you're born. Yeah. And, and we know that uh, women who are uh, in vulnerable situations who are forced to carry pregnancy to term will experience a higher chance of dying because they were forced to carry the the pregnancy to term. There is a certain maternal mortality rate in the state of Georgia. And we know that for Black women, it's much higher than it is for uh, other populations. And so, you know, you're denying women access to reproductive services, forcing them to carry a pregnancy to term. Uh, And and there are some people estimating some, you know, studies show suggesting that we may increase the black maternal mortality rate by another 30 percent uh by denying us our women access to reproductive services and that's a huge increase and a good segue um into this discussion about the the high maternal mortality rates we were talking a little bit about controlling for some other factors um, in there, but even in controlling for those other factors, Georgia still is leading um, at the at the top of these high uh, maternal mortality rates. What are some of the reasons why uh, you mentioned a few of them um, as you were segueing into this? What are some of the reasons why, um, and particularly women of color, are experiencing such high maternal mortality rates? <clears throat> well. Uh, Women of color do have uh, higher risk factors for some of the, um, for some of the, uh, just factors that would increase their risk of of dying during pregnancy or in the postpartum period. Um, You know, yeah, African-American race just by itself is a risk factor uh, for cardiovascular disease and uh, cardiomyopathy uh, has been found to be the leading cause of maternal mortality uh, in the state of Georgia. And then uh, hypertensive disorders, uh, we have a much higher burden of hypertensive disorders in our population. We have a higher burden of pre-existing diabetes. Um, and uh, a lot of our women, are they have barriers to uh, accessing healthcare to control some of these comorbid conditions. And so, you know, we end up entering pregnancy sicker uh, already than, than other women. 
And there are other factors such as uh, quality of care. Uh, we find that when African-American women have the same kinds of problems during pregnancy that other women have, that African-American women are dying of these same problems more often than uh, white women. And, and so some of that may be that uh, black women are getting their maternity care in places that have a lower quality of care than, uh, than white women, that, that may be part of the issue. Uh, but another, you know, like I said before, there are, there are, it's a multifaceted mm -hmm. uh, issue with, with many factors playing a role. And I know sometimes women have felt, Black women have expressed that they haven't felt heard when they brought up concerns um, to providers and, and it feels like it's dismissed. Uh, and so yeah. that might have been an opportunity for an intervention to occur, but a woman was sent home. Um, because there is, as we talk about some of the racial bias, um, that, uh, one, I think there is a, a perception that black women can handle more things. Um, but then two, that I think there's also a bias, um, that we tend to exaggerate our, our symptomology. Um, and so I, I do believe, like you mentioned, the quality of care piece, that we also have to talk about that culturally responsive piece of care of, are you actually seeing a provider? that is going to hear you when you bring up concerns? Are you working with someone um, who is gonna take you seriously when you say something's not right? Right, yeah, I mean, so women need to be more aware of, of some of the warning signs uh, that, that something might be going on that may need to be evaluated as far as uh, you know, cardiovascular disease and things like that. Um, you know, if women are experiencing shortness of breath, um, <clears throat> So a lot of providers may may suggest that oh that's just pregnancy you know you're, as you get bigger you you get shorter breath well no I mean to some degree the physiology of pregnancy can make you feel shorter breath at times but you shouldn't be feeling shorter breath with just moderate just doing your daily activities you shouldn't be feeling shorter breath um, you know at rest shortly and so you know, we, we've got to pay attention to warning signs like that, edema to the lower extremities that's that's very severe or um, kind of rising up the lower extremities over time. Um, we need to pay attention to feeling like the heart is racing or feeling mm -hmm. chest pain, uh, you know, and, and so we should have a low threshold for uh evaluating our providers and, and, and asking ourselves, is, is, our, is my provider hearing me? Mm -hmm. uh, are, are my concerns being properly addressed? And some, so, you know, sometimes if you, if you have a, a feeling that something isn't right, you know, with your interaction with your provider, I think the first thing you should do is ask more questions mm -hmm. to get some kind of clarification, you know, Maybe there was a miscommunication. Maybe there was something that was misunderstood and what was said. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you are happy with, you know, the clarification, then it may be okay to stick with that provider. But, but if your concerns, you know, remain despite, you know, all your questions being answered or, or if your questions are not being answered, then surely there's a problem. But, uh, but if your concerns remain, then, you know, it might be, 
worth uh, considering finding a provider that values you as a person and may and that shares your values. And thank you for saying that, because I think sometimes women feel like they need permission. They don't mm-hmm. want to be a burden. They don't want to be bothersome. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to be labeled as difficult. Um, and you know, some women are fearful, especially if this is a first pregnancy, maybe they don't have a lot of support. Maybe they don't know a lot about, like you mentioned, and it is sometimes people will give you advice and say, oh, well, swelling is normal, or you being short of breath is normal. Or, and so, um, we don't begin to ask questions because we don't know the questions to ask. And so sometimes we don't feel like we have other options. Like this person is the expert. Surely they must know. And I just need to listen to them, even if there's something in peace, uh, inside of me, that nagging um, piece of me that's like, uh, that didn't quite get answered. I didn't quite feel comfortable with that. I wasn't sure if I was hurt. I didn't feel um, like I could really express myself. I felt like I was being hurried or rushed. So I'm so happy that you said, if you're not feeling like you're getting what you need, it is okay for you to go seek another provider. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I said, cardiovascular disease is, uh, you know, one of the main uh, or it's it's the primary cause of uh, maternal mortality. And it, it is affecting black women more than other women. And so women who are obese or have hypertension, you know, they may not if you just have one symptom. OK, if you have swelling, but you don't have a history of hypertension and all your vital signs seem normal, then you know, that that may not be reason enough for you to be sent to a provider. But people with hypertension or or obesity and hypertension uh, or and things like that, they, they, a lot of women should be seeing cardiologists during their pregnancy. Mm. A lot more women than, than are should be referred to cardiologists to have baseline evaluation of, of their heart to make mm. sure that there's no underlying disease. And, and I think getting that done in a lot of the women that have risk factors will greatly improve the maternal mortality rate in the state of Georgia. And, and so we gotta, we need to get past whatever barriers there are uh, to women getting that access. And, and we need to make sure providers are identifying risk factors and, and sending women who are at risk. And, and part of that barrier may be lack of education. So women may not know that they can ask for like, hey, I have um, this history. We have a history in my family. I've had some, you know, I've got these risk factors. I want to be able to see, um, would they need to go to a cardiologist or how would they be able to get? Yeah, so I have a very low threshold of sending my patients to both maternal fetal medicine providers, okay. uh, perinatologists who are obstetricians with a higher level of training. Uh, to address uh, underlying medicine issues, uh, but also sending those patients to cardiologists to have at least a baseline evaluation. Some may only need an an EKG uh, to evaluate the heart, but if that EKG is abnormal, uh, then uh, they may need an ultrasound of the heart, what we call an echocardiogram, to look at the structures and to, to make sure that the heart is functioning the way that it is supposed to be. And if it is not, then we need to be very vigilant around the time of birth uh, uh, to make sure that this patient doesn't have some kind of event that threatens their life. And if, or, or if they do have some kind of complication, we need to be readily there to re- respond to it. We need to be anticipating that. 
So discuss those risk factors one more time for our, our yeah. listening audience. What are the things that people um, may need to know are situations where they should maybe request or ask for <clears throat> that um, referral over to a cardiologist? Well, I mean, I mean, some of it's going to be uh, up to your, the judgment of, of your provider, but uh, risk factors like uh, being over the age of 40, being African-American, having pre-existing pre-pregnancy obesity where your body mass index is over 35. Mm. Uh, if you have uh, pre-gestation, pre I mean, diabetes prior to being, becoming pregnant or uh, hypertension prior to becoming pregnant or any or combinations of these issues. Um, or, you know, uh, if you're experiencing certain symptoms, like, like I said, the swelling, shortness of breath, uh, heart racing, feeling like your heart's uh, skipping beats, um, fatigue, uh, you know, persistent fatigue, uh, you know, these, these things can, can be, they can be very nonspecific and, and you could kind of brush it off as like, well, I'm just pregnant, but, uh, when these things are happening in combinations, they should they should prompt uh, some evaluation for baseline disease. And we want to get in that space, I think, of being preventative. So I'd Absolutely. rather you go, like you said, have that low threshold. Let's go ahead and get, it may be that it's fine, but we'll have this baseline. So yeah. we'll have a place to start from. Um, right. and, I, and I do think it's, it's something to compare to, you know, if, if things change over the course of pregnancy, mm -hmm. you know, we can say that, okay, well, at the beginning of the pregnancy, uh, you know, think, you know, the EKG looked like this and mm -hmm. now we're seeing some changes. Uh, this patient might need to be, even though they're young and seem to be healthy, mm -hmm. they might need to be evaluated for acute coronary syndrome. Pregnant women have myocardial infarction. They have heart attacks sometimes. And so, you know, uh, we have to uh, have a level of suspicion, uh, you know, for for that, and not and not just assume that uh, because this lady is in her in her young, you know, early thirties, that mm -hmm. she's not at risk for these kinds of cardiac events. And we also know the infant mortality rate is higher um, in yeah. certain populations. What are some of the factors that affect? the infant mortality rates? So preterm birth is the major one. And, um, and women who are in rural areas who have to drive to, to get to a hospital when they're experiencing symptoms of preterm birth, uh, they are at a much higher risk of uh, actually having that preterm birth and, and then therefore having a higher infant mortality rate. Uh, you know, access to neonatal ICU uh, uh, care is is another barrier. So some women have to, some women deliver at hospitals where if a baby ha actually has a problem that needs neonatal care, that baby will have to be transported to another hospital. So that care is not uh, present at, at the hospital that the woman's delivering at. Uh, I have privileges at a hospital with neonatal care. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to uh, work in, in an environment where, where that's readily available. Uh, but I think women need to know whether or not, you know, their, their hospital has that. Okay, so that's an important, as you're 
working with your provider, trying to figure out who's going to be a good fit for you, mm-hmm. then also knowing where they have privileges in the event that there is something that happens, we readily have access Absolutely. to some of these neonatal units. Right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And there's a, you know, these trends toward uh, home birth and, and, and things like that uh, can, can really increase the risk of a complication. Cause if, if you're at home and you have a baby that needs resuscitation, uh, that 15 or 20 minutes that it takes to get to a place where you have uh, NICU staff uh, could, could be critical. And so as we go back and we think about some of these other factors like not having adequate health care or um, being someone financially that is not in a stable situation, not having asset access to a provider. Uh, and then we talk about now, now because I, I do recognize that some women don't re- either don't realize they're pregnant or wait until they're about to give birth to even access a provider. So could some of yeah. those factors also affect, because I didn't maybe have good prenatal care. Um, yeah, I mean, seeking prenatal care early. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very important. Seeking okay. preconception counseling. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's, it's quite rare that women make an appointment at my office to say, hey, Dr. Chambers, I am planning on becoming pregnant again. Mm-hmm. I had such and such complication with my last pregnancy. What should I do? prior to getting pregnant to reduce my risk that those visits are very important. Uh, like, like I said before, a lot of women are not seeing doctors outside of pregnancy. Uh, a lot of, a lot of women wait until they have a pregnancy before they seek medical care at all. Mm. And, um, if you're not doing things on a regular basis to maintain your physical health, then once you get to the point of pregnancy, uh, the risk factors are there and, and we just have to deal with them. Uh, if you come and seek care early, then we are better equipped to identify what your risk factors are and to uh, make the necessary interventions. Uh, but late prenatal care, um, you know, which a lot of times is, a lot of women will come to me and say, I've been trying to get on Medicaid for the last three months, mm. you know, and I, you know, I couldn't get an appointment with you because I, I, I didn't have a Medicaid. I didn't have any insurance. Mm. And, and so that, uh, that's often the reason why uh, women uh, are not seeking care, but, uh, but yeah, we, you know, we've got to consider that we as individuals play a major role in our own health, in our own health care. Uh, these, these conditions that, African-Americans suffer from, a lot of them are preventable with like, or at least modifiable in a positive way with lifestyle change. Mm. And so, you know, changing our lifestyles and, and making it cool to live a healthy lifestyle uh, is, is something that we as a community and culturally, uh, we need to really start thinking about. You know, and I think about all these other factors you were talking before is multi-layered so you know if I live in an area where there's a food desert or um, you know I don't have education and information about how to manage eating healthy foods um, where to get healthy foods from I remember 
um, when I was living in New Orleans around my college, that grocery store closest to my college, the fresh fruits and vegetables were never fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and so, you know, if you think about whoever was in walking distance and this was their store, that there wasn't even quality produce for them to be able to access. And uh, honestly, processed foods are cheaper as we think about like this economy a lot of times and I'm trying to make things stretch. Um, you know, I can make that box of potatoes stretch a lot longer. Um, and so I, I think sometimes it is so many other factors about like how we're even taught about how to eat growing yeah. up. And like you said, with some of the poverty pieces, some of those conversations aren't necessarily conversations being had. And I know a lot of people smoke, um, yeah. as their coping mechanism. Um, yeah. and so adding that, what, you know, as we, we um, talk about recommendations, because I do think it is important for us to t have that conversation, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you would say to women about even before you decide to become pregnant, while you're pregnant, after you have your baby, you know, people are breastfeeding, what are some ways women can, can take care of themselves? What are some of those recommendations that you have? Yeah, so uh, nutrition-wise, you know, it, it, it is hard because there are so many systemic factors uh, as to why uh, people are not getting access to healthy nutrition. Uh, educating ourselves is, is factor number one. I mean, even when we were uh, in sharecropping situations, we, we, we grew our own food a lot of times. Uh, beside our little shack on our little piece of property, we would have our own little garden where, where we would grow, uh, organic fruits and, I mean, vegetables. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so this is, if, if you do have some, some land or something like that, then that's something that we need to incorporate as a, as a community. Uh, so some of these systemic things need to be addressed. Uh, some some things are, are personal and and and, and family uh, associated that that need to be addressed. Uh, but but the the weathering of uh, just experiencing being a, a black woman in the United States uh, can have a deleterious effect on one's health over time, and so. You know, we're seeing evidence that these systemic factors that continue to, to burden uh, vulnerable communities uh, when it comes to environmental justice, uh, where, where people live, you know, uh, Black communities are very often in places uh, where there are toxins, you know, produced right alongside the residential area. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, you know, we, we have to think about policies that uh, will impact the health of our communities in a positive way going forward. And, and these policies are not always just monetary. It's not always just jobs. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you go to a job around the corner from your house, but that place of that factory is producing a toxin that's poisoning your whole neighborhood, then, you know, it... <laughs> You don't need that job, you know. Uh, that community does not need those those jobs. Those, those, it, it's it's not worth it. So, so we have to think about uh, 
we got to vote. You know, yeah. voting secures other rights and, and voting impacts the policy decisions that get made at the state and local level. And so uh, it, ignoring politics sounds sounds cool. You know, it maybe uh, it's it's more entertaining to do other things with your time. Uh, but you need to know what is going on and you need to know who uh, is being put in office and you need to have, we, we as a community need to always uh, have our voice heard uh, so that uh, the policy decisions that are being made respect uh, us as a community and our, and our voting power. If we're staying home, then we can be ignored and, and uh, the policies will go to help other communities uh, that are participating in uh, the civic process. Definitely, I think um, I would love to see community gardens um, for us to be able to take some of this land that we have in each of our cities um, that's being underutilized. And yeah, I could have a garden for it so people can come and get fresh fruits and vegetables or we can have um, churches or community agencies deliver these fresh fruits and vegetables to kind of help offset. And that means, yes, we're going to have to have the right leadership in our government in order for some of those things to happen. And also our organizations that we're all a part of doing things that we can, educating. I appreciate you taking the time to provide, educate, you shared some information with me that, you know, we always are able to learn. Um, and hopefully with some people that will be able to pass it on that here, uh, the words that you've shared to be able to help. If I, I always say, if you help one person, um, then to me it was all well worth it. And so you may have saved someone's life by giving them information that could be helpful to them. It is, it's all tough. Like it's tough to change diets. It's tough to um, undo systems that you have some control over and some control you don't have over and you try to figure out how I can balance and um, do things maybe that I wasn't taught to do. Um, and, and find resources where they are limited. And it's a lot to put on mothers, which is why we're having this conversation, because now you're forcing people to be mothers who should be able to make the decision about whether or not that's a journey they're ready to take at this point in their lives. Um, any other parting words you want to share, Dr. Uh, Chambers? Well, I just, uh, I want the uh, women of Georgia uh, to, you know, consider uh your your health on at least on a daily on a daily basis you do something for your own uh health and well-being and for that of your families on a regular basis make make it uh make it a habit and um you know i think that that's some things you can't control you you, you can't control whether you have a hospital in your county but you can control whether you walk your neighborhood you know for 30 minutes you can, you know, and provide me as a provider, you know, I, I kind of think about the things that I can control. Uh, uh, and so uh, having a low threshold for getting women the, the, the screening services that, that may be necessary to identify the, the risk factors that may be associated with uh, maternal mortality uh, is something that, that, that I try to do. Um, and so, you know, I think that we need to just empower ourselves uh, uh, and, you know, with, with God's help, 
just educate ourselves and and when you know a little bit better do a little bit better just try to learn a little something every day uh and and, and improve yourself and share it with your com community i thank you for that word because sometimes we do feel disempowered mm -hmm. um and like we have so much weight that we're carrying but when we hear from people like hey you can't control all of that, but let's focus on the things you can control. Um, you can go out and get a little walk. Uh, and now they have, you can walk in your house. They um, so much stuff available on, on YouTube these days where you can actually do walking things around your house that you don't have to go outside if your neighborhood isn't safe. So there are ways to, to be able to do that. And, um, you know, like you said, I can work with the foods that I do have and maybe just add some things that are a little healthier, replace some things um, and, and try to make those small changes. And that sounds like that can make a big difference. So I thank you for empowering our viewers. I want to thank you. I appreciate your time coming on on the show. Uh, Dr. Chambers is actually on call tonight and he took time of his busy schedule to, to be able to share this information with you all. Uh, we have a couple of more episodes of Tea Time with Dr. Tarver this month that are all part of our conversation series. Next Tuesday, the 23rd will be the conversation, the children COVID left behind. And on the 30th will be the conversation, the forever heartbreak of losing a child. Dr. Chambers, thank you so much for all that you do for our community, um, for all of the ways that you help encourage and support and nurture women uh, in their health journeys, as well as through their, their pregnancies. Thank you for all of the work that you're doing, the seen and the unseen, uh, that is behind the scenes. So you take good care and everybody be well. <laughs>